Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Kirby Winfield. Kirby's a seasoned startup operator and angel investor. He is currently the founding general partner at Ascend VC, a pre-seed stage venture fund investing in marketplace, e-commerce, DTC, and B2B software startups in the Pacific Northwest. Earlier in his career, Kirby was a founding team member and operating executive at back-to-back tech IPOs with GoToNet and MarchX, as well as a two-time venture capital-backed CEO. He is a Techstars mentor and passionate board member and board chair-elect at Special Olympics of Washington, where he helped bring the 2018 Special Olympics USA Games to Seattle. In his free time, Kirby coaches youth sports and enjoys running, tennis, and traveling with his wife, son, and daughter. Welcome, Kirby. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. I love... I love uh, the headphones and that I'm just learning right now that you're a DJ because I'm huge into music and if I had known I would literally make you DJ for us <laughs> so that might be like two that might make you I might make you come back on for two well, yeah or whenever we get together live like you know get yeah. a cohort in here I cannot um, wait yeah no, it's, post post COVID yeah. okay so we're gonna we're gonna let it rip with some rapid fire starting with what is your favorite Special Olympics uh, competition or event? Oh man. So, uh, you know, my daughter, is, Kate is 11 and has Down syndrome and autism. She is my favorite athlete. Her, probably her best event is gymnastics. Um, she's her floor routines sometimes, uh, <laughs> go off schedule, but she like freestyles and well, that's frowned upon in gymnastic circles. I love watching it. So that's, uh, Oh, that's yeah. probably my favorite. But yeah, she does. Uh, she does swimming and uh, and basketball, um, soccer, cheer, and gymnastics. So she's she's probably busier oh, busier wow. than than the rest of our family combined. A little athlete. She picked it up from her dad. It sounds like. Um, what is the first bucket list trip that you're going to take after COVID? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I. I think we'll probably go to Germany. My son really is interested in, uh, so he's in eighth grade. He's really interested in the German heritage on um, my wife's side of the family. Um, we've already knocked out, like, if you can't tell, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm 100% Irish and English. Uh, we've already knocked out uh, those trips. So, um, yeah, maybe getting yeah. him some exposure to, uh, to that, that part of the world would be fun. Yeah. Amazing. I love Germany. Um, okay. What are your favorite three albums? That's easy. Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. A Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders. 100%. <laughs> and gosh. I pr- Lauren Hill? No. Uh, Miseducated? No. I, you know, my sister loves that album. And I, I, I 
there are a couple songs on there. But no, you know, I I would probably say for number three, I go with Van Halen Never Down. Nice. You have a, an eclectic mix of taste. I like it. Yeah, you should see um, yeah, you should see the record collection. It's definitely uh definitely all over the place. Nice. Are you old school DJ? Like you you Oh yeah, no, I never yeah. Like you spin? I, yeah, I never went to Serato, so it's all uh just two Technique twelve hundreds and uh old pioneer mixer and um I love it. I love that you're still doing that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well it keeps me uh it keeps me engaged in new music too, right? So I go out and run yeah. out and grab the latest. That's fun. Yeah. Um, what would you do with an extra hour in the day? Wow. Um, I would probably meet someone for coffee. Like, so, so it's interesting. I, I have the extra hour now because I don't drive anywhere anymore. I don't go and meet. My thing was always, I'm going to go to the entrepreneurs where they are. I don't want them to come have to you know, be in my space. Like I want to go to them. And, and so I, that, which is, you know, great. Um, and addresses a lot of the like power imbalances I used to really dislike about the investor entrepreneur relationship, but mm. um, but it costs a lot of time. So I was constantly driving around town and meeting people for coffee and running here and there. And I don't do that anymore, so I'm much more efficient. So I feel like I've got that extra time, which yeah. you know, which I use to go for a run every day and you know, and then spend you know that time with my family. But um, so if I had that extra hour, I'd probably go back to getting out and like actually. Yeah. The in-person connection is, yeah. is you can't, you kind of can't beat it. Yeah. yeah. And is there a job that you would do for no money? Uh, I'd do this job. I mean, I, I'd invest for no money. I'd invest in founders for no money, for sure. I, yeah. you know, I basically did <laughs> um, and almost still do. I don't take a very big fee on my fund. And, uh, and, and as an angel, of course, you're, you are, you know, essentially doing it for free. So. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, that's uh, that's really something I've discovered in the last like four years. It's just how much I enjoy um, working with with a founder on their idea and helping them sort of get out, just get out of their own way, so that they can you know mm -hmm. succeed. Um, yeah. And I'm much better at helping them do that than I was at doing it myself. <laughs> and, well, your operating experience, I'm sure, comes in very handy of just learning what to do, what not to do. Um, how to anticipate things before they happen. I'm sure you're great at that. Um, what is a pet peeve? Founders who don't number their slides. <laughs> I mean, look, they're, they're in the world, in the universe, there are so many things that you know, I could say I get hangups about, but um, I'll choose one that maybe is germane to this conversation. So yeah, uh, it's yeah. something I learned from one of my first investors, Bill Bryan. Um, and it's such an obvious, you know, it's such an obvious thing, but like, yeah, I'm going to write that down. That's actually a good takeaway for any entrepreneurs who are listening. It's it's huge because <laughs> investors and the real like that's the nit, but the real the real learning you know uh, the the up level from that is investors see thousands of decks and they see thousands of pitches and and your job partially as an entrepreneur is just to again get out of your own way. Don't give don't don't put friction into the process of the investor cons right. consuming your story and information. And, and so, uh, yeah, like numbering slides. Yeah, it's like leave things that are not distracting from the messaging that you're trying to get. That makes sense. You got it. You got it. Yeah. You're good. Um, 
is well i always say that in interviews too i'm like you know all these other things that people bring into an interview right are distracting and it's not like you're looking to not like the person but usually that's what's happening in interviews you're looking for gaps or holes and same thing with investing i'm sure you're listening to a pitch you want to love it but you're trying to poke holes at that's it yeah that's a really astute observation shauna like I, I do think that you know the interview process or the hiring process is a lot like the the investor founder relationship especially at the earliest stage because you are making a bet on the team right and yeah and and, and yeah if you're the interviewee or the founder um you know part of part of what you're trying to do is is uh it's just not give the other person a reason to say no. Right, exactly, exactly. So let's not distract them. So I, here's my last question on the rapid fire and then we'll get into you and, and all things Kirby. Um, is there a hobby that you haven't pursued yet that you're like, I gotta do this at some point? Oh man, I, there, yeah, there are probably two. I'm staring back here, I have, uh, I, I have an Akai, uh, beat machine that um, I have not yet taught myself to use. So I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, get more into actually making music, making beats. Um, you know, I bought a, uh, I bought a DAW and thought I was going to mess around with like beat making podcasts. This was, you know, in like March and April of this year when right. um, I, I felt like I had time because the whole startup world kind of froze on the financing side. Um, so I bought all this equipment and now it just sits here. <laughs> so, so beats, so the beats will be your next hobby. I like it. What's the second one? You said you had two. Um, actually, I was thinking about um, doing a, a podcast. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, not to be passe because uh, so many great people are already doing it and who needs another one. But I found that like I've just stumbled through life into a lot of really interesting relationships and um, know a lot of interesting people who... Um, maybe don't have, aren't inundated with requests to be on the podcast, but who have stories to tell and voices that need to be heard. And yeah. Um, and you know, it's the, I would, I would listen. That's a really cool thing to take on. Well, that's daunting though. And I, you know, I felt the same way and I just literally did it without much thinking. And then I committed to putting it out once a week, which is the bigger thing. Yeah. Just don't, don't put it on any sort of cadence and then just do it when, when you feel like it. And um, I, I don't really know. I have never studied podcasts, but I just know they're fun. So I'd recommend it. Well, we, we're having fun, right? Yeah, this is not a blast. And that, uh, so fun. All right, good. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, I'll get you on my podcast. We'll, we'll, play, talk, I... we'll talk offline on it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about you. I know you grew up uh, here in Seattle, correct? I did, yeah. And um, tell me about your childhood. Are you uh, one of many kids, uh, an only child? Yeah, one of two kids, a uh, younger sister who um, actually, you know, I'm excited for her. You know, she's at Airbnb and they just filed to go public. So, um, Oh, nice. Plus she likes Lauren Hill. So we she like likes her. Lauren Hill. So it's funny. So she's actually, she was, she's my younger sister. She was always the more intellectually curious, self-motivated, good kid. Um, you know, went to, went to Lakeside then went to read for, for college and kind of just totally made up her own major. Um, and, uh, and I was more the, uh, I was a troublemaker. And when I was a kid, um, I too uh, was, uh, went to the Lakeside entrance exam. And for those who don't know, Lakeside is like this prestigious high school in Seattle where Bill Gates went. 
and what have you. And I went. Hey, oh my gosh, that's right. So Bill Gates yeah. and Shauna Swerlin, and then like <laughs> some, some other some other chumps, and and my sister. Um, but I got in a fist fight at the entrance exam in sixth grade. Um, oh, as, that's not. Is what my what my dad has said in recent years is, yeah, that was you saying you didn't want to go to Lakeside. Um, yeah. And uh, and uh, so I, you know, I I had my. Uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like you figured it out, Kirby, because you ended up at Middlebury, which is a fabulous school. Well, and the only reason I did that is because I went to Seattle Prep for high school, and the Jesuits put me in line. And mm. in all seriousness, that that was, uh, like, the perfect uh, fit for me at the time. I was, you know, I was definitely, like, I didn't like authority and, and had a chip on my shoulder and wasn't maximizing my potential in, in junior high. Yeah. And, uh, sw switched over and went to went to prep and and sort of turned it around and um, had a great experience there. Met and actually met um, the younger sister uh, of who would become my first uh, boss in the startup world. Um, so, you know, there, if that if I had gone elsewhere, who knows? Yeah, it's always interesting, like like sliding doors, part of life where you're like, what if I hadn't done that? Where would my oh, life yeah. be? It's it's always so interesting. So you said that you had a chip on your shoulder. Um, I, I've interviewed so many people who say that, and I'm always curious, like, is that a motivator for you? Is it, does that still drive you? No. Did somebody doubt you when you were little? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, I think it, I think it came from just, you know, being, um, being a firstborn and mm. having my dad be a very, uh, he, he was a, He's still still with us uh, yeah. <laughs> but as a professional he was a radiologist and you know was part mm -hmm. of some private practice here they bought like the first mri machines in seattle and um he was very much in straight straight ahead like um super high expectations yeah um, so you're supposed to follow in his footsteps and you were like yeah, yeah, maybe gonna... maybe not into medicine but i think just you know he, he was an ivy league guy and like this and that yeah. and, and there was just yeah the, the expectations were really high and, and like there wasn't a lot of room for um not performing and so i think that was really yeah. that's really good um yeah. like he yeah. instilled this idea in me like you know you just show up first leave last work harder than anyone and ask for more and that'll put you ahead of 99% of people. And he said that and I always that always stuck with me is right. But the problem is I think that's I think that's I said we don't need any sound bites but I think that's a good one. You have to say that again. I loved it. So you're saying come in earlier, leave later and work harder than everyone else and you always it's 100% true. Yeah. Yeah, and he said and ask for more when you're done, right? And ask and so, for more. And are you saying this to your own kids? So we're, you know, we're not there yet, but but the problem is so the problem is he's right. That'll get you in front of ninety nine percent of people. But then once you're in that one percent of people as a high performer, basically that just means you're like at, at this point that just means you're a worker in the knowledge economy. Like it's not what whatever. Maybe you're in some right. It doesn't necessarily bring you joy. No, it, it doesn't. Yeah. And so what do you do once you're there? And I think that's what I really struggled with professionally. Like yeah. I knew how to get in the door and I knew how to like sort of make my mark um but I, I struggle with motivation you know beyond Once beyond right, that yeah. external thing so yeah well and there's also a lot of people and you strike me as one of them that needs to have a purpose and have passion and not just a paycheck like that doesn't seem to be your driver it seems to be more um you know being creative and 
and driving an idea more than just like, oh, I'll just go to work and go through the motions. I think I just mean, um, I like, I've always liked doing startups because that aspect of, you know, extreme risk and extreme reward. And, mm-hmm. and um, much like in the type, you know, I guess, you know, whether you're black, you can play a strategy, count cards, you know, and uh, sports betting, you can handicap and like pick where you think you have edge. And, you know, and in startups as well, you like, you, can, you have a certain amount of influence over the outcome. Mm-hmm. It's a game of skill. Yeah. But it is also still a game of chance. And that, that combination really is compelling to me. Um, mm. And. Uh, and are you competitive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've. I can. I played. I, I don't know why. Did you play sports growing I up? I did, yeah. Or the running, tennis, or is that that's, like later? Yeah, that's, that's the old man stuff I do now. But I was, you know, I played uh, lacrosse and football, and I actually played football through college. Um, and. Yeah, competition is a you nice. know a big part of like who I am, and I actually um, probably over-indexed on competition in my early career. Um, you know, partially because we had very sort of alpha Wall Street competitive cultures um, in, yeah. in the two first companies I was with. Um, yeah, I want to I want to hear more about those. So, as a competitor, are you more likely to love to win or hate to lose <laughs> it's funny because that's the question when i was interviewing for the job um, that eventually became the ceo role at uh at, at exposed bill bryan again my first investor asked me that question and i knew mm. the question was asked that there was a right answer yeah i was but, gonna say like i don't know what the right but answer i didn't is. but i didn't know what the right answer was um and so i just said what i feel which is i hate to lose yeah, and what did he say to that? I mean, what which one was the right answer? I don't remember. Probably, <laughs> probably I love to win. Um, yeah, but but because you know, loving to win means you, you you're more willing to risk it all, and you don't worry about the downside case. Whereas, like, you hate to lose, you're going to be conservative. To me, like winning is the opposite of losing, and that's why it's great. Like, so, so yeah, so um, and and I've always been the kind of person who like I want to put in the work. I want to do everything I can. So that, you know, if, the, if, it's, if, if we take a loss, like, it's not out of a lack of diligence. Right. You leave and, it all in the field and you can say, like, I put it all in. And then if you lose, it's just like. Yeah. Oh, whereas if you're like, whereas if you're like, oh, no, I just love to win. Well, you might just kind of show up and expect that to happen. Like, I feel yeah, like hate to, hate to lose is like a, a grinder. Yeah, at, I completely at, you know, agree. Yeah. I so, so you ended up at Middlebury. You played college football which is awesome um and what did you want to be after college so i was super clear on it i was a creative writing minor and an english major i wanted to go into advertising um in new york city and you know at that time that meant like uh it wasn't quite mad men but it wasn't math men like it became and yeah you know so so my idea was yeah like somehow i had this idea that i'd write copy but also be an account person and like also like I didn't really know what the hell I was talking about. I, I didn't even know that that job existed. And I think I'm a couple of years older than you. Um, but I don't think I had much exposure to ad agencies. Yeah, it was weird. But now that I've seen Mad Men, I'm like, that looks like a sexy, fun business. And especially New York City, which, of course, I lived there for many years. And it's, that sounds really cool. 
it's no, it was, you know, it was a romanticized idea, right? And it was like, I read a lot of John Cheever growing up or something like mm. that. My, my, you know, my dad used to live in Manhattan. And so I had this, yeah. I, and this romantic idea of what, what all that kind of could be. Yeah. Um, so I did internships, you know, in the summers. And, um, and, and how did you end up going into this, you know, founding team for GoToNet? How did that come to be? So literally one of the jobs I did one summer was, my, I mentioned my friend Megan Keister um, mm -hmm. from, uh, from Prep. She uh, introduced me to her older brother, John, who at the time was running like a, you know, uh, uh, physical software company um, where you would ship, you know, they'd ship these you know, CD-ROMs out. Um, and he needed someone to write the marketing copy. And Megan was like, yeah, my buddy Kirby's like, he's a writer. And so John just reached out and uh, I wrote a bunch of copy for his brochures and kind of thought nothing of it. He paid me a couple hundred bucks or whatever and just spent it on beer and went on my way. And, and then, uh, then I graduated in 96, moved to Manhattan, was working um, because I was completely unprepared and didn't deal with like getting a job. I ended up with the, at this uh, giant PR firm as like an executive trainee. And hated it. Um, and John reached out and was like, hey, we're starting an internet company. And like, you're a journalism major, right? And I was like, sure, I am. <laughs> and he's like, well, you have a writing sample. So I actually wrote, like I made up these articles um, and faxed them to him. Um, and he, he brought me on. I was think I was a temp employee. And I ran you know, editorial and, and copy for this nascent um, web portal. Um, which uh, two months later, their head marketing person left and they just promoted me to the marketing role. And I ended up running marketing through, uh, through the IPO and through- uh, What an incredible ride. What was that um, like as far as the funding? Was it bootstrapped or, or venture backed or how did that um, it was, company grow? It was bootstrapped. Russ was you know, a CFO a public company CFO on Wall Street, but before that was like a rainmaker for a couple of banks in the, when he was in college um, picking stocks. And so he had a really great understanding of the financial markets and specifically how to engineer um, public market equity fundraise. And so we, um, we went out um, in, in a sort of, I think it was called small business IPO, um, quietly in 97, um, and did and use that uh, use that public stock to acquire um, a number of different companies that we eventually pulled together under the GoToNet umbrella and portal uh, brand. Um, and a lot of other companies, you know, were popping um, as public stocks in '98, um, and we were not. We because mm. we used it as this tool. What was the business um, model? Like, what did what exactly did GoToNet do? As you used to explain, my father-in-law would always ask me, what the hell do you do? And I'd say, well, it's like a magazine, but it's on the internet. Mm. And so you just sell, you know, you sell ad impressions. Um, and at the time, you know, you, you could sell those for a really high cost per thousand. Um, we were one of the only profitable internet companies mm -hmm. back in the day. Eventually, the street took, took on to that story and our stock popped. Um, and was there ever and, a dip, Kirby, or was it like pretty much a rocket ship the whole time? Well, that's what I was trying to say. It wasn't a dip, but it felt like a dip because everyone else was, you know, up, you know, a hundred X during the time where we were flat. Mm. And so, but John and Russ and the team had this really, you know, 
thoughtful strategy around just building a profitable company and rolling up all of these assets to create this sort of juggernaut of internet traffic. And we were, I think, at one time in the top 10 in terms of the amount of impressions we were running um, through our owned and operated websites. And so um, that paid off over time. We, we eventually did become a $4 billion company um, and ended up selling, I think, for two and a half to, uh, to Infospace in 2000. Wow. I remember that at the time I was living in New York and, you know, slightly following Seattle because there was a part of me that was like, will I ever go back there and just kind of tracking like what was happening. And I remember that being a huge story out of Seattle. What a cool experience for you. And so was that, did that put you in a position to, you know, obviously have the luxury of figuring out what do I really want to do? Did you know, like I got the bug now and I kind of want to no. keep going or were you like maybe I'll go be a DJ or maybe I'll go travel like I felt no I felt like so I felt like you know certainly I felt, I knew exactly how much good fortune I had had like it was very clear to me um you know even while we were there kind of this idea of you know, there were people who were concerned about buying and holding their options to avoid some extra tax versus like I'm a, and I was like I'm just gonna sell my stock like I never thought you know this would happen and um and so, you know, fortunately had some breathing room after that to, to think about what to do. But honestly, that was 2001. And you might remember the Mariners um, had a pretty good year that year. So I literally, that was like, my wife calls it the summer of Kirby. Um, all I did was hang out with my buddies in the, like the restaurant industry and go to, go to Mariners games and, uh, and hang out until all hours. Yeah. So I kind of had, I kind of made up for lost time a little bit, um, you know, cause, cause go to that was a, you know, real seven days a week, 14 hours a day job, like no vacations. Like yeah. it was. And what was the uh, culture like? And what did you take away from that culture as far as like how you wanted to create your own culture going forward? Well, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It was a, um, it was an incredibly intense, urgent, athletic type culture. So, um, there was no, there wasn't a lot of um, room for reflection. Um, I, you know, it took me a while to unlearn it. Like, I, I it was, it, it, it was kind of like, let's, I don't really care what's going on with with you. Um, this, what's going on is this company. Like mm -hmm. if we're going to make this work, this is the only thing that matters. Yeah. We used to call go to that the, the girlfriend killer because <laughs> like literally like almost everyone went in with a girlfriend and like immediately that relationship died. Yeah. What I do mean, you think? I mean, that's got, that, uh, to me, that feels like more of a New York mentality, um, that kind of living to work versus working to live, which feels a little bit more Seattle. Um, and also nowadays, I'm not saying it's fluffy, but everybody focuses so much on culture and mental health and taking care of yeah. employees. And this is like a little bit more dog eat dog, like get on or get off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, that's it. Although I think that's a Valley thing now too. I used to have Valley investors tell me, oh, Seattle, that's where you guys don't work that hard. Right. Like, and, and, and look, I, I think it's not for everybody and it's not for everybody every in every stage of their lives. Yeah. So I would say it was definitely for me then. Like what else was I going to be doing? Right. The time? Like, no, I totally it, agree. I, it's like a constructive use of my time. Like, 100%. To, and I couldn't have learned the things I learned and 
had the failures I had that make me a better like investor now or yeah. what have you like without like you're doing getting an that. MBA too, right? You're but that's why I mean honestly, it's one of the reasons that I'm not interested in running a startup mm-hmm. anymore. Like, because I I'm not sure I know how to do it the, any other way than you know. And I look, we we can all say all the right things, um, but I just look at the portfolio and like the companies that I see. You know, I don't see a lot of companies being successful where. Um, there isn't an intense culture of work. So in between GoToNet and MarchX, I had this sort of crisis of my wife was in business school and I just felt like this kind of a loser after the Mariners situation. You know, I was like, God, what am I doing with myself? And I went to work for my buddy's restaurant for a while, like in service and just didn't really know what I was up to. And, um, but then I, so I knew I had to do something, um, but I didn't want to go work for someone else. So, so I was like, oh, maybe law school. Like, uh, I've been told that I should be a lawyer in my past, like probably because I was super argumentative or whatever. And so I literally just took the LSAT and I did well enough to get a scholarship to SU. So I went to Seattle University Law School for nine months and um, may or may not have been longer, but what the fortunate thing that happened in about month eight was that uh, John and Russ and uh, Pete Christopoulou, um hit me up and said, Hey, we're starting this thing. You want to come, do you want to come help us? And so I said, yes, I think I left my books in the locker at Seattle <laughs> university. And, um, and, uh, like Rick ran to the office. Yeah. Um, and so also, that was the beginning of March. Also marketing. You were also like the marketing started. Yeah. I started as the marketing guy out of the gate and, um, but knew that I wanted to sort of have a more, you know, I think I knew that I wanted to, develop my sort of general management skills operating and, yeah and run a PL. and so ended up hiring myself an amazing um, replacement who was 10 times better than me lee mcmillan who's now the ceo of whitepages.com um to take my marketing job there after we were public and and i moved over and ran um our media PL. Mm. Um, so we had we had a we raised a couple hundred thousand or a couple hundred million dollars um and bought a big portfolio of domain names um, and it was my job to take those from being these kind of ugly parked web pages uh, to you know building it and working with the team to make them into you know this network of you know, useful content and technology experience. Yeah. So we so that was. Uh, and what ended up happening with Marchex? I mean, I know that it's still around, but like, what's been the evolution of that company? It seems like it's gone through all sorts of um, change and growth and. Yeah, so I think out of the gate, you know, the, the thesis was really, um, a, it was a big bet on search engine marketing and the rise of Google. And so, you know, monetizing um, a network of pages via paid listings, um, acquiring traffic via paid listings, and, um, and you know, actually operating our own, um, our own paid search engines and feeds. Um, that was kind of MarchX 1.0, uh, which you know got us a billion-dollar public market valuation and, um, it, and you know created a lot of opportunity for us. And I think over time, as sort of Google um, and and the search world sort of shrunk, Google grew and the search world outside of Google shrunk. The margins and opportunities in that category shrunk, and so you know the team um, um, was sort of had enough forethought to bridge into a new into a new uh, into a new category and that was voice 
And so, um, so they, they both by acquisition and product development have built this really interesting voice analytics platform uh, where they have you know, millions and millions and millions of calls um, from all of these major clients that do a ton of you know, phone, um, either sales or customer service, and they pull out insights from those calls. Um, and actually, it's, it's one, of my, one of my best friends, Ryan Pauly, who I met our first go around at MarchX, just came back and is now their chief product officer. So, um, so I'm, I'm, still, uh, I'm still long MarchX, um, but they've, yeah, they've, they've, def, they've definitely um, evolved. I'm sure that going through that, you learned a ton. Was that, would you call that kind of your biggest learning in your career or kind of all of it collectively? No, because I think, you know, when I left MarchX, we were still growing. Um, and hadn't sort of made the made the shift to a different model. Mm. Um, so so I left in 2008. Um, you know, we grew the media business there from four million to forty million wow. revenue. And 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 so my I think what I learned there was that ten years of working for uh, for Russ Horowitz was 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 enough. And I mean that in the way, in the manner that I didn't have the stamina he had. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he is still there at MarchX and was just this incredibly intense leader. Um, and I was in an incredibly exposed role um, running our, our biggest PL. Yeah. You got to have and the stamina for that, for sure. You do. And I wasn't treating myself well. So, like, I, I was not a healthy person at that time of my life. And, um, and I wasn't, so I didn't, I didn't put myself in a position to be able to make a longer run at it. But, you know, and also I think working for the team for, you know, for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, um, and change, um, yeah, change you know, I was ready to try something new. Good. Yeah, of course. And so, um, you know, you've been very self-deprecating in a sweet way where you've been like, oh, there's other people who are better and smarter and more stamina, but when are you kind of, if we were observing you, not as an investor, but as an operator kind of in your genius zone, like rocking your job? I mean, I never felt, I really never felt like I was doing that. So it's hard. So do you feel like it's hard work? Like your dad said, the hard work thing. um, And you never really felt like that flow feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I I think, you know, if I ever felt it in any of the roles I was in, it was, you know, it was doing partnerships or closing big sales or like selling the company, closing an M&A transaction. Mm-hmm. The relationship those, aspect of that probably. Yeah. Like, and, and, the, and the, and the inflection points of like visible victories, mm-hmm. right. When as opposed to, as opposed to, yeah. yeah, as opposed to just chopping wood and building product and like so many of the things you need to do and you need to love mm-hmm. to make a company successful. Like I just wasn't interested in. Yeah. Um, Cause they didn't, I mean, it's the same goes back to school. Like I was never intellectually curious enough to like do the work be, just because. Well, I'm looking like, back, don't you wish you had been more like that? You're like, we were sitting on a wealth of knowledge. And as you get oh, older God. and you're like, I'm tired and I'm distracted. And I've got like this, I mean, I'm full ADD, like squirrel, squirrel. And I'm like, <laughs> gosh, I wish that I had done a deeper dive. Actually, my best learning period of my life was at Lakeside. I ended up um, leaving there and going to Mercer Island for high school after middle, I spent all of middle school at Lakeside. And I still remember my teachers and my lessons there. There's something about that, that form of teaching worked for my brain. It was much more hands-on. And that's why I'm saying like this work experience that you've had has been kind of your MBA 
versus sitting and studying case studies, you're you're probably better at just like being in it and and yeah. learning on the job. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm just better at, at you know reading and reacting. I would say, yeah. like that's, that's how I always put it. It's like just read and react. How your um, how your direct reports that you've had over the years would describe you? Like, are you good at managing people or do you lose interest in that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, well, you're probably I, good because you're good at developing uh, entrepreneurs well, or like taking I, interest. I mean, I think I'm better at, I think I'm better at the investor-founder relationship than I was at the employee-employee relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I feel like, look, I'm really pleased that there are folks who I got to work with early in their careers who have since gone on to do really, really awesome stuff. Like, and I may or may not have had anything to do with their trajectory, right? But it's fun to watch. Mm -hmm. um, have you taken on that formal uh, mentor role or have you ever been a mentee where it was like kind of a formal, like, hey, will you mentor me? I've been a, never formal. I, I mean, John Keister was my mentor. Um, it's one of my best friends. Um, and, you know, like I said, was the kind of the first guy to believe in me, just give me a copywriting job over the summer versus yeah. let alone like my first job in technology. So, uh, and he, I'll never forget. He always took the time. It would have been so much easier for him to hire someone better or more experienced, but he took the time to sit with me and redline my, my, my deck or my PR release that I wrote or whatever it was and like tell me what was wrong and tell me how to improve it. He invited me to pitches um, to sit in and help like that I had no right to be in. Like he just, and I, I think it's almost, that almost ruined me as a, as, as a manager because I always felt like that was the bar. I was trying to reach for mm. my, for my employees. And what also happens is not everybody's up for that. Right. So you, so you can, sort of the challenge, the challenge becomes too, like identifying who is going to benefit from, or, you know, even desire that level of like mentorship and engagement. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you're talking, I'm actually thinking about this COVID moment of remote work and thinking like, I wonder how much of that might be lost right now. Just that quick, oh. nimble, hey, run in my office, quick question, quick pen out, run back, turn it around. Like uh, the innovation and the speed I would imagine it's, are suffering pretty significantly right now. Yeah, the founders that I know that are super early are like, it cannot wait to get back in the office because there, there is just that, there's, so I'm sure there's, I mean, I know there are startups, I've seen them that are trying to solve for that sort of serendipity and, mm. um, you know, that alchemy that happens when you've got, you know, people working hard um, on, a, on a new problem yeah. in, close pro, in close proximity to each other. But yeah, and you think about it, just even at big companies, like, like you know, the people who are so so pleased with their ability to work remote, and you know, I'm one of them, are typically people who are well along in their careers and don't need mentorship and don't need to build network and don't need to like learn. Totally, by, and, and it, by it doing. Affects, um, as a recruiter, it's impacting hiring because you're you know, clients are thinking about a different level of bar, not just talent, but independence, self-motivation, grit, ability to kind of have resources and figure shit out. Um, yeah. And then as a recruiter also with this remote opportunity, um, 
you know, we can place people anywhere from all over the country and other cities are reaching out to us to help them find the killer Seattle talent that we have. So it's just opened up this whole new way of thinking and world. And I'm super curious to see what's going to come out of it. Um, I am a little bit concerned about women and how rapidly they're pulling out um, of the workforce right now because of this whole kind of kids at home and how do I do it and I can't manage. Um, and I love that you have invested in so many women. I really love that. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of a coincidence, I guess, like it's happenstance, right? I, I looked up and lo and behold, I've got um, a, lot of, a lot of female founders in the portfolio. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I will say it's not by design, but um, as it turns out, like my job, well, you, you need know. to be open to it. I mean, that it might not be by design. And I know that when we first talked, you were like, hey, I'm investing in the best talent. They happen to be women, which I appreciate very much versus just like, oh, I better check that box. But you have to be open to it. You have to see women in a certain way and um, make them feel safe enough to be vulnerable to have you either on their board or as an investor, because it's a big decision to take money from someone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I've been fortunate enough to always you know, work with really impressive women, um, you know, my whole career. Um, in my first, my first boss before John was actually a, a woman who ran emerging markets at Ruder Finn Public Relations, um, who was a tough sure. boss. But, I, but I've kind of, uh, you know, my, look, my mom was, was a nurse and after my parents got divorced, she went back to school, got, got her degree in two years and then got a master's in two years and then started her own practices as a counselor. Oh, wow. My, my, my sister has always been someone who I've looked up to, even though she's younger, because how like together she is. Um, and, you know, my wife, my wife got an MBA while I was sitting around like, you know, drinking beer at baseball games. So I've been surrounded by, you know, impressive women, you mm. know, my whole life and, um, and, and, and I think I gravitated towards, towards having women's friends always like, and I think that's, you know, that's something, there's something to that just in, in diverse investing in general, like mm -hmm. you kind of invest, I would say you kind of invest the way that the back of your brain works. Like, yeah. It's like, who are, who are you around? Who are your friends? Who do you look up to? Who influences you? Like if you will, if you're influenced by, you know, people from all over the place from all different backgrounds and like you you recognize and respect that they're influencing you you're not just entertained by them like then then uh then it's easier to to those channels are already like those grooves are driven in your brain those channels are already open yeah so you don't so there's no stutter step there's no like wait a minute when you are when you see a founder who is not a straight white male because you you've spent a lot of your life you know friends with people who are not straight white males yeah or, that totally you know, learning from learning from people who are not straight white males yeah not say not say that we're not big fans of the straight white male in a sense. when did you first become interested in investing and uh, you know what have you learned about it i wrote i wrote my first check uh in 1999 to my buddy matt greenfield what's up matt um <laughs> uh he's in la was in la at the time and um, he roped me into the startup that they were going to put cameras in bars so, and then have a website connected so you could check the scene out before you went. This is what I was really interested in at that time, right? Like, 
like that. Well, what a great idea! Like yeah. I'll be able to go and say, eh, is it worth me going to uh, you know the whiskey tonight yeah. or uh, or no? Because um, suffice to say, like you know that that was uh, ten thousand dollars. I'll I'll never get back. Um, but but you know I kind of invested. Angel invested in technology since day one, um, just very opportunistically without mm -hmm. a lot of thought, right? And uh, yeah, and stumbled into you know one or two winners and, um, you know, and then ended up running a couple of venture backed companies. And so having that other, like that other side of the table experience. Mm -hmm. um, Did you enjoy the fundraising process when you were on the other side? No, didn't no, like I it. hated it. I hated it. And how I has was, that shaped you as an investor now being on the other side yeah, of the table? I think about it a lot. I was super, insecure i didn't like the power imbalance i really got i really got in my own head in the process all the way from like building the deck to building the narrative to i just felt so powerless and like confused and i felt like it had nothing to do with my actual aptitude to build a great business and so as an investor i kind of i want to what I don't want to do is evaluate the entrepreneur's ability to deal with the anxiety that may be caused by the power imbalance mm. between an investor and an entrepreneur. Mm. Like to me, that's just a bullshit, like, like screen that put up. And it's so interesting. You say that. Cause as you were talking, I was just thinking about some of these engineers that we have that fail the whiteboarding um, part of the interview. And then, and then they go get a job at like a competitor that's just a kick-ass job, but they just interviewed a little bit differently, maybe like an on-site um, active interview where they're working on a problem together. Um, and some people just don't test well, or some people just aren't great at pitching, um, yeah. but they may be killer and they may have that grit and a great idea. Yeah, I had an investor tell me, um, I'll, I'll leave out all the details, but mm -hmm. uh, I will just say that this person told me, maybe next time you should be a COO. And, uh, and, and I'll say like, they were probably right, but it doesn't feel good to hear that when you're the CEO of the company. Yeah. Um, and so, so look, I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of come at it from that angle, mm -hmm. like having experienced, uh, have experienced that. And, and, you know, I want to, I want to put founders in a place where they can be the best at what they're the best at. And that's what I'm investing in. Mm -hmm. I'm not investing in how good they are at the thing they're the worst at that, but 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 people do that like that that to me is silly like uh, i'm going to invest in what you're the best at i'm going to help you you know discover the places where you know where you can add folks to supplement you yeah and i love that um, thinking and that's another amazing soundbite i think people and other investors should hear that that it's like let's invest in people based on what they're best at and we can fill in the gaps with talent, you know, in those areas that need development. It totally makes sense. So when you're investing in some of these um, entrepreneurs, how much of it is kind of data analysis, um, gut idea, founding team, like what are you using as your vetting process? Yeah. So, I mean, it varies because like, look, there are three things that matter at the earliest stage. It's, uh, team technology and traction um and i would say the more that you have of one the less you need of the others so the example i would give is if you're jack dorsey you don't need any technology or traction 
you're, you're going to get a check for who you are, right? Um, most of us aren't Jack Dorsey, and so we need either a product that you know is framed down to somewhat, you know, somewhat built, or a prototype, or an MVP, um, you know, or you know, if you've got 50 customers signed up to pay you 10 grand, um, maybe you don't need the product at all. So I would say the 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 um, the word I would use for traction of pre-seed is signal. Mm, okay. So yeah, I don't say I, you don't need revenue. I but see. If, but if you're but if you're pitching me on your you know your beauty startup right you better have like fifteen thousand people on your insta yeah like if you're pitching me on your recycling startup you better have ten thousand people in a community group who are passionate about you know household recycling mm-hmm. like like that's the bar anymore is is there needs to be a signal that you've done your homework and that you have a unique an unusual insight into where the market's so going. When you're looking at co-founders, how important is it to you that they have synergy as far as just making sure that they're aligned on the vision and the work style, personalities, just all of it? Like I've I've heard stories often of that kind of going south. Uh, yeah, I mean I I I, I get less um heartburn about that than than some people do i i guess i feel like yeah you're gonna have like there are so many things that can go wrong with a startup um co-founder issues there tend to be other things that are wrong with the founding team or their pitch or the way they present that will say that before i get the chance to worry about whether they they have co-founder issues i'm just passing on the investment because of those other things Mm -hmm. like if that makes sense yeah like in other words like awesome teams are awesome teams right like and i I only want to invest in awesome teams that makes and so like you know usually it's folks who have worked together before um have a track record together or known each other do you always take a board seat um no well i mean obviously you've done so many investments you can't be on all those boards but how do you determine which boards to join and what makes someone a good board member? So typically as an investor, you know, you're taking a board seat when you lead a seed or a round. Um, I don't lead seeds. Um, I lead pre-seeds. A lot of the time it's not appropriate for the company to have a board at that stage. Um, so typically I'm, you know, I, I act as a sort of, uh, you know, off the record board, right, for the founder. We have, you know, recurring meetings and I try to help them like get to the next milestones. And then once they're ready, you know, sort of click into a mode where they've got more, uh, more, a, more of a uh, uh, programmatic, you know, reporting cadence and they start to like grow up and act like the company a little bit from a governance perspective. But um, the boards I join are generally places where, you know, the founder has asked me to join. Um, and and where there's a specific area where I feel like I can be helpful in the company's like growth. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, and what is what makes a good board member? Um, I think that it, it really depends on the board member. So I think there are so many different roles that board members have to play. And like on a good board, you know, you have different characters, right? So you have the coach or like the friendly. You know, usually that's an outside board member. You have the fiduciary, like the, the sort of 
edge checking number cruncher, who's probably usually a later stage investor. Um, you've got the sort of rainmaker like network, you know, board member. Um, you know, hopefully you've got someone with like a with like a founding product background. Like, I mean, I guess the, the, there is no like one type of good board right. member. Right. I like how you're saying that because I'm thinking of all these different boards that I know about. I'm like, that's exactly, that sounds like the killer board. <laughs> the one you just described, if you could like get all of those boxes checked. Yeah. And, and what about you as far as, um, you know, you talked a little bit about a backable entrepreneur and team, but is there a trait that you're like, if they don't have this, I'm absolutely out. I guess the one trait I don't like because it reminds me of how I was as a founder is cynicism. Mm. And so, you know, I got told when I was raising money in the Valley, like, Hey, you think like an investor. And I realized that was absolutely not what the investor wanted to have to say to me as a founder, right? Like that's not a compliment mm -hmm. because what it means is that you're removed from, there's a level of remove from the problem and from your opportunity. And that that's, you know, you're sort of cynically looking at it like, here's this market, we can exploit it, we can build this product, it's going to be worth this much money, like this is why. And so sometimes I'll run into a founder who's like super impressive and has all the right sort of boxes checked. Um, but I can tell that they're sort of like too much like like me, mm. you know, better, but but still that level of cynicism and what that that just means you're not going to run through the wall. Mm -hmm. You're going to sell too early or you're going to, you know, you won't make the pivot. Like, um, so that's one thing I think you try to be careful of is like, I don't want to say tourists, but folks who, um, folks who are like well within their rights to think this way, by the way, like just who have a level of remove and, and, and sort of, um, um, they can be cold, sort of cold-hearted about analyzing their opportunity costs and like what they're doing and why and for how long. And you know, you kind of want people who are too busy trying to fix this problem that's bothering the shit out of them right. to think about like <laughs> the calculus of their next ten years of their lives. Yeah, that totally that that makes sense. And so for Ascend, what exactly do you guys focus on? Which types of um business models are you looking at like who should be coming to you to pitch their ideas yeah yeah so super straightforward i only invest in stuff that i feel like i have some edge and ability to help the founder in um and, and also that i think our region is advantaged in and so you know that's obviously e-commerce um um you know transactional like consumer businesses right uh, but specifically selling goods um Marketplace businesses, both B2B and B2C. Um, and then sort of B2B, SaaS, um, with an AI sort of filter on it. Mm. Um, that's, that's, that's a little hand-waving. And look, I, I, think, I think when you're a regional fund, like you need to have um, a decent amount of generalism in your thesis uh, just to be able to capture enough um, potential outlier outcomes. Mm. Um, I think if you're just, if I were to just sit here and say, I'm only doing B2B marketplaces in Seattle. Um, you may you know, miss I probably that, couldn't, yeah. I probably couldn't deploy enough capital, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that makes um, sense to me. So B2B software is kind of a, uh, kind of a, a catch-all, but, yeah. but I'll say like, the, the, in that, it's really interesting if I look at like 
um, what we've invested in the last two years, you know, it's heavy on AI um, and it's heavy on this sort of concept of the proliferation of vertical SaaS within the enterprise and you know, how do you tie how do you pull threads across the enterprise so that you know people have more real-time measured information about what's going on? Um, or you know, how do you make sure that workers can sort of access information um, from across all of these apps in like a in a simple and intuitive way? Um, and you know, there's future of work stuff that's coming down the pike now. Um, we're just looking at doing something in the in the meetings um, space. Um, which is, you know, everyone's fav favorite thing in the world is, is looking at their calendar for the week and figuring out which meetings that they wish they weren't at, which, which ones they need to be at, which mm -hmm. ones could they just get a digest of. For sure. Um, when and how to, meeting, and how, to, how to make sure it's worth your time and worth turning on your video camera and how do you that. stay engaged when you got the kids running in the background and yeah, it all, that, that's a challenge for sure. And so outside of Ascend, how are you spending your time and um, where do you put your energy as far as things you're passionate about? Um, so I run every day. Um, so I'm passionate about my own health. Like, so I sleep, um, exercise, and nutrition uh, is always the tough one, right? But I try. Nutrition's um, tough. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, especially now where like so many of the other things that I, you know, would reward myself with, like going to watch my son play in a competitive soccer game, like I just are gone. Mm. Um, you end up tricking yourself into thinking you deserve, uh, of course. You deserve celebration, thing, celebration, right? Yeah. But so, so we try to keep it tight on that front. Like, so I'm passionate about that because I've realized that's the sort of foundation of my, you know, ability to be a good parent, a good husband, and a good friend and a good investor. And so I, I really make that non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. um, You're running on a treadmill or outside or on a trail? Outside, um, treadmill, depending on the weather. Um, yeah, yeah, I try to get, you know, 45, 50 miles a week. And, Holy um, crap, that's a, that's a runner runner, good for you. Yeah, well, it's like I said, I've, I've kind of, I've got this problem where I'm zero or one, like I'm all or nothing. Yeah, and I get those types. What sign yeah. are you? Leo. Oh, okay. Happy belated, or I guess August, seven August. Yeah, yeah, August. Yeah, yeah. So I did, you know, and I'm passionate about, um, um, I'm passionate about Special Olympics. Um, so super active on the board. We just had uh, the opportunity to bring on a great new CEO. Uh, so spent a lot of time on the CEO search for that. As you can imagine, that's always. Um, a super important um, mm -hmm. um, hire to make. And, um, How frequent are the Special Olympics? Well, it's funny. So, so we have eighteen thousand athletes in the state of Washington with intellectual disabilities who participate, um, and they train every week for the sports they're in. We, we offer twenty nine sports in four different seasons. Um, each of the seasons has, uh, you know, eight regional games that lead up to one state games. And so, um, you've got, but you've got like league play. Um, beyond just like the actual quote unquote Olympic event. Mm. Some people don't understand about Special Olympics. It's pretty much a core, um, it's a core, it's a pillar of the lives of most of our athletes. So people with intellectual disabilities tend to suffer from um, social isolation. Um, they tend to 
be unemployed at a much higher rate than the general population. Um, they, and, and so um, for our athletes, you know, going to practice once a week um, and playing in a game on the weekend isn't just like something that they've added on to their busy, busy schedule. In a lot of cases, it's the thing that ties them to their community mm. and their friends. Um, and so, you know, Special Olympics as a, as a movement is really about, you know, enabling those folks to be, to be active, to be connected, and to be healthy. And, um, you know, it's certainly uh, having a daughter in the program is great, but really it's, it's the adults um, in the program who really benefit, I think, the most and who need it the most. And so yeah. That's amazing. Been a crazy so thing. when will it be? Because of COVID. So we do, we, you know, spring, summer, winter, fall games. Um, so those, are all, those have all been taking place online. Oh, um, online. It's, really, okay. it's, it's really hard because we have, uh, you know, our athletes tend to not have access to technology at the same rate as the general population. Mm. Um, so a lot of struggles there. So that, that's been taken. It always takes a lot of my, my time and energy, but it's, it, it's rewarding work. Um, and then... Um, and then, you know, I, I mentioned Seattle Prep earlier and I joined the board there. And um, I'm just so impressed with what they've done during COVID for the students. And, uh, you know, feel like because it was such a pivotal experience in my life, that mm -hmm. um, it's the right thing to do to, to try to help um, pay it forward for the next generations of, of students there. So I, I get to work with those folks, too. And, You've got a lot uh, going on. I mean, seriously, just the running alone has me exhausted. <laughs> uh, you're like, you're, maybe you are like the Energizer Bunny, like rest more than you thought. You definitely have a lot of energy. So my ultimate question for you is what fuels you? I, you know, that's a great question. I, I think I want to, uh, I'll be honest, I think I want to make my wife proud of me. You know, I think I want my kids to be proud of me. Well, I mean, I just, if, just on what I learned in the podcast, I'm sure that they are. Um, well, I think, you know, I think if I can do that, then I'm probably doing the right stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I like that. Love it. <laughs> I need to change up my answer. My husband's like, really? <laughs> that would be the last thing I'd be kidding. That's a great answer. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the podcast. So fun. Oh, this was a blast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.